0: The ice Pod is the podcast about Polar Science and the people. We talked to scientists who went on board Polarstern, the German research icebreaker, for the biggest research expedition in the Arctic. Hello everybody! Um, I'm very excited actually to welcome you and also a cat, as I can see, <laughs> down at <above, laughs> to welcome you to this uh, first live episode of the IcePod the podcast about polar science and the people, which is, by the way, also the official podcast of the Year of Polar Prediction. Um, My name is Kirstin Werner, and um, I'm um, with uh, Sarah Pascaretto in our virtual studio today. Hello, Sarah. Everything all right?
1: Hi, Kirstin. Yeah, I'm good. I'm very excited. Can you believe you're live? (laughs) (laughs)
0: No, actually not. We had so much technical (laughs) issues to solve. So sorry about uh, being a bit late. Um, All of a sudden my fancy um, podcast microphone didn't work anymore. So you can, Sarah has her on and we hope that uh, my track is anyway recording through the um, podcast tool we are using So we both, uh, Sarah and me, are working uh, with the International Coordination Office uh, for um, Polar Prediction at the Alfred Wagner Institute, which is uh, based in Bremerhaven in Germany. And if you shouldn't know the ice pot yet, we have started this podcast last year in fall, actually, to support the one-year ice drift to the Central Arctic, the Mosaic um, campaign. You might have heard about this one um where the German research icebreaker Polarstern um went uh, to the central arctic to stay there for a whole year to drift with an ice flow and to study all kinds of perspectives from arctic natural science and uh yeah mosaic is well now in in their year of studying and they've done fantastic fieldwork i have to say Um, They uh, drifted with a central ice flow, which actually they called the fortress because it turned out it was very stable um, compared to the ice flow around, ice flows around. And um, yeah, expedition leg four has uh, recently recently concluded. And um, yeah, as far as I'm informed, they have met now with the next uh, expedition leg, actually the final one, number five. And um, then uh, once they have done the exchange, they will go further north into um, the Arctic to find uh, another ice flow to um, finish their expedition until October this year. But uh, yeah, today we are not talking Arctic, actually. We're talking Antarctic, um, which is really exciting for us because uh, I think all our podcast episodes, even the, the bonus episodes, have been on Arctic stuff. So this is the first Antarctic one and uh, yeah, as you know, and uh, as Claire said in the beginning, we are part of this APEX workshop Antarctic Science Global Connections. So thank you very much APEX to uh, put us into your agenda here. We're really happy that we can contribute. And you might also know, usually we pre-record our sessions. So this is the very first live episode. Um, actually uncharted waters for Sarah and me. So as I said, we had to figure out some some technical stuff. Um, but we hope actually you will have fun with this. And we certainly will, as we usually have when we pre-record. And yeah, that's, that's actually the main point of doing this. Right, Sarah?
1: That's true. We have mostly fun with it once we figure out all the technical stuff too. Uh, but I think we are doing fine. Also today, it's gonna be it's gonna be great, and we hope you appreciate too. And so, as as Kissen said, today we are very happy actually to speak with Vicky Heinrich, who is a weather observer, and she has worked at different stations in Antarctica. So, is a very different point of view for us too, uh, and has recently moved into a PhD project that is about psychology. Uh, and the psychology of people who are using weather forecast information. So we have a, also kind of a social science <laughs> perspective for a change. Um, so Vicky is currently based in Hobart, Tasmania, which is actually where we all wanted to be <laughs> in this time of the year. At this time in a world without COVID, kissing would probably be on a plane or already there <laughs> to attend the SCAR conference.
0: I would be traveling to New Zealand, I think, because the SCAR exactly. conference concluded. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> but then coronavirus happened, and so we had to make adjustments. And we still we we're very happy that we actually had the chance to to do this, and this maybe may not have happened uh, in the regular car conference. So yay! <laughs> it's a it's a nice it's a nice uh, occasion for us too. Um, so well, welcome Vicky. Hello to you. How is the weather today in Hobart then?
2: Uh, hello, I'm good, thanks. At the moment it's a bit pitch black because it's uh, nighttime here, but it was another lovely <laughs> right. rain, yeah, lovely sunny day. I think um, it was meant to get up to 12 degrees, but I was inside watching a lot of the workshop this afternoon. So um, just saw the sunshine outside my window, but um, yeah, we've still got a bit of snow on the mountain. So it's very picturesque and you're all missing out, unfortunately.
1: Uh, ah, yeah. too bad. We can say that here in Bremen, Germany, which is where uh, me and Kirsten are broadcasting from, is very hot. It's a very hot summer day. It's around, I think, 30 degrees or so. And uh, yeah, feels like summer for one.
0: Yeah, it definitely is summer here. Well, yeah,
2: (laughs) not down there. (laughs) (laughs) No, we haven't got the heat wave here. We've got the cooler temperatures for us, but um, not as cold as your winters get. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, so so um, let me quickly introduce Vicky to all of you, for those of you who don't know her. So Vicky has been working as a weather observer for many years, actually, with the Australian Bureau of Meteorology. And she has been on all kinds of different Antarctic stations to observe the weather conditions. But uh, while working for the Bureau, she also moved into studying psychology. So I think that's, that's a very interesting thing. And uh, last year, she then started her PhD project, which is, by the way, endorsed by the Year of Polar Prediction. And in this project, which she does at the University of Tasmania in Hobart, she is looking at how people in Antarctica make um, their decision based on weather forecast. So, um, Vicky, first question, when was your first time you set food on Antarctic mainland?
2: Um, Back in 2009 was my first trip south, so um, more than 10 years ago, we had a 10-year reunion last year, um, 2019, so yes, I've been a very whirlwind 10 years of going down south and coming back to Australia, so um, yeah, it would have been, I think, December because we had a bit of a delay with the programs and we went in late in um, time for Christmas down at Casey Station.
0: Um, I, was, I was wondering, was there ever a moment um, by then, in 2009, that, that made you always come back ever since to, to Antarctica?
2: i think it's something different um obviously we always say it's kind of the people in the place so 50 50 probably um the fact that you get to go to antarctica for 12 months and get paid to do it um, when other people never have the opportunity or can only go as a tourist um if ever Uh, so just to see an amazing place and the australian stations are all in very different locations um, scenery climate um the different animals you'll see so that can be quite amazing and then the kind of small community living and the characters and the people you meet and the friendships you form is definitely another part that makes it very worthwhile
0: yeah i see yeah i've never been there to be honest Uh, it would be some other goal actually for me to ever ever go there yes Because we're talking about in this first part, we're talking about um, you. Who who are you actually? Um, and um, how was your how's your background? So I was wondering, um, observing the weather for so long now for the bureau, what did you always uh, wanted to become a weather observer? I mean, did you look at as a child? Did you look at the sky all day? Or how how did what was so fascinating for you about the weather? <laughs>
2: um basically I did environmental science first time around at uni um didn't pretty much ended up with a qualification to go work in the mining industry and decided I didn't want to do that um uh, with chemistry and geology backgrounds so um I actually saw a in the paper (laughs) back in the days when you looked and got work through the newspaper still and um, they were advertising weather observing, um, the fact that you might have the chance to go to Antarctica. Um, I had seen the forecasting ads, um, the meteorological forecasting a few months earlier, but I didn't have the mathematics background for that. Um, So I applied for a job and I'd never even heard of weather observing. Ah, okay. (laughs) Some of the people I trained with, they had heard about it and it was their career of choice, but I thought it sounded like an adventure, um, something different, something new. So, you got to travel, got to see parts of Australia. Right.
0: So, it it wasn't actually your dream to become the, you know, the queen of weather on TV or something. No.
2: (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) And in Australia, we don't generally, um, here in Hobart, we did, and also in WA, sometimes they would have a forecaster doing the TV weather, but normally it's just a news presenter rather than a trained um, meteorological person. Yeah.
0: Ah, okay. I see. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think yeah. that's different Quite in different. Germany, right, Sarah? Yes. Because,
2: yeah. It, I think it's uh, really meteorologist. Yeah. Yeah. And it's in America too. It's written by the forecaster, does the forecast and puts presents on TV. So it's a very different system. Yeah. 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 That's true.
0: Okay. So, so from, from your CV, I looked at, um, I mean, how, I, I mean, you did the training with, with the bureau, um, how did that look like? I mean, what did you need to do to, um, yeah, to, to become this weather observer?
2: So, um, I had to move from Adelaide to Melbourne for um, the training. So, they then had us in Melbourne for nine months. Um, and during that, they told us, um, you know, the 10 types of clouds. So, you can identify clouds and amounts and how much of the sky so is you, covered.
0: you do look... At the sky, sky observing yes. the was
2: to look at the clouds and play with balloons. Um, so <laughs> that sounds awesome. awesome. <laughs> yep, and there's also a um, hundred different types of weathers that um, we have codes because a lot of the um, weather information, how it was traditionally passed, um, comes back from World War Two and um, the old communication methods. So they had these codes, and you'd learn um, that. For example, um, if it was a dust storm or something, it would be a code group of a um, – Now I can't remember any of them. <laughs> Rain is in the 60s. If it's a thunderstorm, it's um, 100 and the higher – the number, the more severe weather. So hail, for example, might be 80 because it's a more dangerous weather for aviation or for people outside. Um, So we spend a lot of time learning all the different types of weather observations. Um, You have the weather balloons that you do the upper air. So you're getting the profile from the surface to about 25, 30 kilometres through the air. So um, we basically had a whole heap of courses and you know nine to five monday to friday we'll be doing training and exams and learning how to be an observer
0: so you can actually launch a weather balloon just with 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 the eyes shut and sleeping,
2: right? Because you did it so, <laughs> so often? Or? Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, we use hydrogen in the Australian program, so it's a little bit more <laughs> care is taken. Okay. <laughs> um, it's a bit of, safety, yeah, bit of procedure, so you don't um, go kaboom. So, um, but, yeah, definitely it's um, all different size balloons and different types of things. But, yes, we learned um, how to do all of it, yeah. Yeah,
0: okay, I see. Then further you moved I mean you did the training and then um you became uh what you called a senior observer technical officer level two and level three pretty yeah. fast. So maybe you can explain to us what it is. Um maybe uh, compared to the I don't know, the the lower <laughs>
2: level. <laughs> um, so. There's uh, basically three levels of weather observer, so it's not very (laughs) um, high level. Um, So you start off as just a trainee, so that's a technical officer um, observer level, so that's your basic level. Um, Then once you have done the -the on-the-job training and the probation period. So that's usually a couple of months, which was when I moved to Port Hedland in Western Australia for that um, as my first posting, and then um, you become a technical officer level two. So that's just the classification um, within the Australian public service. <laughs> um, and then we, um, if you're in charge of the station or managing the station, which are um, quite often, if that person we had originally five people in Port Hedland when I started there so one person was in charge of the rosters and the reporting and things like that so that's the senior observer at that level um, which is then the position I was doing down south.
0: Okay and you you're still working for them now it's part-time because you you started uh, with your PhD but still I mean you have made a career at the Bureau of Meteorology. I would say Uh, is there any secret of success doing so or is that just what the people usually do or I mean
2: Um, a permanent position with the Australian Public Service um, with the Bureau of Meteorology so as long as you um, do your job and you're happy there um, you can stay till you retire basically Um, not so much nowadays people tend to move a bit more and partly the reason I started getting um changing my education and things was because weather observing is lot, a lot more automated now. So there's, apart from the Antarctic positions, there's a lot less positions in Australia. So it was um, time for a career change in terms of being um, automated and computerized and it would be out of a job eventually.
0: I see. Yeah. And, and what is your favorite weather?
2: Uh, Favourite weather? Probably um, as long as you're not standing outside a good thunderstorm. <laughs> <Can't>
1: go <past laughs> that's the exciting. Thunderstorm with
2: the, yeah, with the cloud and the lightning. And yeah, that's probably um, as long as you're not f- at work sometimes, you'd be sure very very busy because um, you're doing a lot of special observations to let the aeroplanes know that there's um, bad weather. But yeah, I think um, you can't go past a good thunderstorm.
1: That's nice. That sounds like a very nice experience and a very nice career path, actually, like exciting, always something new to see. And so we, we just discussed your experience as a weather observer, but we are we are curious about the, the this figure, actually, because it's It's a central role also for for us at the Europolar prediction and the Polar Prediction Project because yeah, we mostly we are mostly interested in, in weather conditions in the polar region. So you're kind of the perfect person to talk to in this uh, in this framework and so but I was I was actually thinking about a conversation that I that I had with with my grandma actually because we were trying to explain my husband's job he's doing um, modeling and so working with also some, uh, somehow with weather and, and stuff and and she was so confused at a certain point she was like why would you waste your time doing that when you can just watch outside the window and see what weather it is today I don't I don't really care so is that what you do too? We just watch outside the window. What do you see? What what would you say?
2: Yeah, um so I'm basically getting the data that they use to ground truth those models or to start the models. So we're the starting point of your forecast. So mm-hmm. we're looking um, obviously there's machines that or automatic weather stations will give the temperature and the wind speed and direction, but the human eye still is better at seeing the whole sky for finding out the cloud information and also your present and past weather and things like that. So um, that's where we kind of do that manual observation side of it and um, add the extra <laughs> value to your information for a forecast. And there's a couple of different uses. Um, aviation forecasting can be quite um, what they call now casting. So mm-hmm. from now to the next 24 hours yeah. and they need very immediate Information, particularly if they have to divert airplanes for fog or for bad weather, and they need to land somewhere else, um, and also their fuel capacity and things like that. Um, but what we do also becomes the climate record. Um, mm-hmm. So they can send the we send the data overseas, and we get everyone else's, and it's a freely shared information. And all these supercomputers generate our forecast models, um, and then we also have obviously the climate record and climate change and climate modelling, which it can be your seasonal, three months to six months outlooks for farming, for um, drought and things like that. And then yeah. there's also things like bushfire modelling. And then there's um, when people are talking about long-term climate change and things like that. We're kind of the starting point that they'll compare models and data to.
1: Yeah, hmm. and you were saying you were you can basically launch a weather balloon with, or at least Kirsten what's say. Uh, what else? <laughs> yeah. What <laughs> else do you do to observe the weather? Like other than weather balloons and what other measurements do you take?
2: Yeah, so there's temperature, air temperature, as in um, how hot did it get today, how cold. Um, We'll read the rain gauge or the snow gauge, depending where you are. Um, True. In Australia, you you have um, what we call an evaporation pan. So Mm -hmm. um, it's a cubic one metre round pond that we measure how much water has evaporated over 24 hours. So um, that's... Of use to people who are looking after um, water for um, farming or for managing water for cities right. and things like that. So they know the evaporation rates um, for farmers as well if they need to irrigate. Um, we will look at the ground soil temperatures. So um, at Ten centimeters, twenty centimeters, fifty centimeters, and a meter. Um, we have a thermometer, so you read those, because um, the automatic ones were, or not quite very good yet. Um, there's. Uh, terrestrial, which is uh, basically the ground temperature overnight. Um, So how cold it got on the ground. Um, And then we also have things like sunshine. So um, the good old-fashioned sunshine recorder is a glass ball um, that we don't use for forecasting. (laughs) Um, So um, (laughs) there are much more sophisticated bits of equipment to do the same thing. But the um, Campbell Stokes from 100 years ago is what they used to measure the amount of sunshine, bright sunshine during the day, so all those kind of things, a lot of the measurements and things come from 200 years ago when people mm-hmm. in the UK started the system we work on with the World Meteorological Organization. Yeah.
0: So, Vicky, Vicky, I was wondering, what is, what is the main difference between observing the weather of Australia and observing it in Antarctica?
2: Um, so obviously, the temperature ranges is yeah. a fairly obvious one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, the fact that you open, um, we have a, a wooden box um, that has slats in it, white wooden box, called a Stevenson screen. So you put the thermometers in that to um, so there's no air. F- there's a a constant environments um, in the shade and with the air and things which um, so you can compare between locations for your temperatures. So you open that in um, Antarctica in the middle of the winter and just the heat of your face and your breath will raise the temperature so <laughs> you've got to very quickly look at the <laughs> thermometers and shut the door again or otherwise you'll um stuff up all the readings so there's things like that um but snow is the main difference because most places in Australia we never experience snow so mm-hmm. learning you like you um the weathers you use all the time you kind of learn the numbers off by heart so learning and working out well what kind of snow is that or what kind of group does it work in and um for reporting it. So that's the main difference. And then um, with the weather balloons, we um, have some extra or have bigger balloons because it's colder. Um, okay. So we need the big balloons to get the height um, and also doing the ozone balloons, um, which are the 1200 gram balloons. So they're twice as big as normal. Um, and there's taking up an ozone sun, so that's a different observation we do down south that um most p- people in australia don't do at the normal mm-hmm. stations
1: that sounds a b- a b- you have to be quick you have to know a lot of things it's like an all-round <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you have
2: to cover. Yeah. it's very nice. it's
1: a, it sounds like a hard job and and you were doing it in antarctica so i'm picturing like the harshest conditions you can possibly need in in this planet so Was there, is there something that it's most challenging for you to when it comes to observing the weather and especially in Antarctica maybe?
2: Yes, so obviously it's not complex obviously, um, it's the same job Australia or Antarctica and once you know it it's um, reasonably straightforward but it has to be done on times um, Mm -hmm. because everything is done at the same time um, internationally so they have the closer the starting data is, the better the models are going to be at the end of the day. Um, So if everyone can send their balloons up at the same time or read their thermometer at the same time, then um, that's kind of how (laughs) the system started. Um, So the timing of things, if there's, you know, a blizzard happening, and you'll try your hardest to get to the balloon shed to be able to do a weather balloon. But if it's too dangerous, you can't get outside or you can't get there or you can't get back from the balloon shed to the main living quarters kind of thing. So that's the type of thing that makes it a challenge. Um, And when it's minus 25 and you can't tie the balloon off with the string, so you take your gloves off and then you regret it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So yeah, the kind of, Bad visibility and the strong wind and the blizzard is the main challenge. Um, and working, you know, at 11 o'clock at night, if that was um, when the 11Z balloon went off. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you might be working when everyone else is kind of having time off. So, that right. can also be, you know, that kind of challenge of... <laughs> Having the time schedule com- completely shifted from everybody else, <laughs> yes, yeah, so yeah, it's kind of um seven days a week, so that's um always been the interesting one as well with um the met roster, yeah. So we can eliminate
1: the idea that weather observers just look at the sky and tell.
2: Clearly, <laughs> <the weather> <laughs> we do, but we, we not notice what's happening.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this is not what is happening. And if you're planning, if you listeners or anybody else is planning on doing the weather observer, take this into account. You have to be strong. You have to know a lot of things. So just make your choices wisely. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You, you know what? There was there was this Korean colleague, Sarah. Do you remember Yong Park? Yes. He made yes. Uh, for because he had to, he was working on uh, on the Korean station, and uh, he had to launch radio sounds. And he made this box and put right. the weather balloon into a net so it would it would not uh, you know move around while he brings it outside. So that was uh, pretty smart, I thought.
2: Yeah. You have to be inventive. You would often get comments from your col- um, people on stage and they've picked up your remains of your sad balloon that got caught in the okay. fuel farm or it went <laughs> down the hill and you saw it roll and it disappeared and you know it's not <laughs> launched. So unfortunately, um, yes, yeah, it becomes a bit of waste. But, um, yeah, you'll get comments about <laughs> um, <laughs> where, where they sometimes end up can be quite interesting and, you know someone wants to release one, um, then you do it on the calm day, on the clear day, when it's walk out and let it go and take a photo. So um, it can be very different conditions, definitely. Right.
1: Yeah. And uh, speaking of challenges, like recently, one more challenge that that the Weather Observer experienced probably together with many other workers was the, the spread of the coronavirus, which... Kind of force many activities on all the spectrums really to to just stop or or really just shrink uh, very significantly. Did you could you see this in the impact of the of the current of the spread and the pandemic on the weather observation? Um, which was w- what was the biggest uh, change
2: maybe? Yeah, no. So um, personally, because I don't do that role anymore because <laughs> um, you can't right. um, with studying full time. I can't do the shifting um shift work full-time but um they were classified as um the same as the forecasting necessary workers so they st- were still going mm-hmm. to work okay. even during the shutdowns um but the main more of an impact has been on the aviation because uh, most aeroplanes have basically a radio sound, although it's called something different but that's basically what is the little box we under the, the balloon that ha- collects your temperature, your pressure and information through the atmosphere um, because there's so much less flying, right. there is less data um, and that actually had an impact of measurable. I can't remember the exact details. You'd have to <laughs> ask someone else but it was at least 5% poorer forecasting models because of that less data mm-hmm. from less aviation. Yeah, So um, that is one of the impacts and obviously at the moment um there's still people doing the weather observations on the continent um, and the sub-antarctic islands because they go for the 12 months and it's more the impact um this coming summer where there's okay. reduced programs and the fact that can we get the resupplies in and the changeover mm-hmm. of staff without obviously spreading covert to the continent so right. that's going to be the- And if you can't get those supplies in or you can't get the people in, then you might see where programs are closed down. It's just the automatic observations. But um, that's definitely something within the national programs, which I don't know much about. But um, that's definitely would be one of the things that if um, we're talking stations having to close because you can't get ships in, and you can't get the um, supplies in.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I recently learned that the German Weather Service, um, be- because of this uh, less observations from airplanes, has um, increased the the number of radio sounds um, over Germany, and they also mm. started using the the data while the sound sinks to the to the to the ground again. Is that also something that the bureau considers or has done or?
2: yes so um that's one of the ones the software we use um was always they only cared about the one direction as you said but with the ozone sondes they were, were interested in it as the sond came back down because we would mm-hmm. have the there's a big foam box was the mm-hmm. um had a pump in it that read the ozone concentration and then you stick your traditional radio sond um which like I said, reads your wind speed and direction, temperature, pressure, humidity, um, get stuck to the side. So it was only for the ozone sons that we would keep the program running and collect the data on the way down. So um, I'm not sure that we are doing that um, otherwise in the Australian program. But like I said, I'm not working in that role to know the yeah. nitty-gritty anymore. But it's something they have the capacity to do. And um, I do know there are websites where you can kind of track weather balloons and see where they land and things like that. Um, and people go out and collect them. So, and obviously when there was the trend a few years ago to tie um gopros to the bottom of balloons as well um that was one way to get get to your pictures and then you have to be able to find the balloon at the end of the day so um you need to know which way the wind's blowing up in your upper air yeah right
1: and but do you expect this changes or like changes that have uh happened because of the coronavirus to to be long-lasting changes like would would you expect some uh, major, not revolutions necessarily, but like changing the approach to which, um, weather observation are made.
2: Um, potentially if you're coming back to the question of funding, because aviation pays for a lot of the forecasting. Okay. Um, through various methods as well as the government. So, um, and that's done differently between different countries. Um, but a lot of the improvements in forecasting have been for aviation. And if we have less aviation, less people traveling, then potentially long-term, who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, <laughs> it's quite out of my field. It's a bit like our, our questions around, you know, research and research funding and early career type things right. at the moment. And so mm-hmm. no one really knows what the future is and what the impacts might be, but um, it's definitely one of those things. But then you also have, you um, like the advances in satellites, and we still use the weather balloons to ground truth the satellites. But as we start putting um, sensors on phones and sensors on everything and around cities, um, when people are talking about some of this big data stuff, which again, I know, <laughs> <laughs> nothing. Um, but um, that's another source of information. And um, mm-hmm. it yeah. might not be as high quality weather information as compared to our kind of top tier standard climate. Um, weather stations, but there's definitely will be interesting to see what comes from that kind of thing and, do, you know, modelling and forecasting, uh, the more data, the better to a certain yeah. extent. So, um, that's the hope. <laughs> yeah, that's the hope. I mean, quality also comes into it, but um, as we know, what you put in is what you get out. But yeah. um, that's definitely will be another interesting space and if um, we've kind of got these cheap low-level satellites and things for communication over Antarctica um, and for weather information and things it will be interesting because um, obviously the Polar Prediction Project, it's those gaps we have in Antarctica mm-hmm. where we have no information and what methods and ways people have of filling those gaps. To, that will then improve the models, which improves forecasts for everyone back home as well, not just in Antarctica, yeah. but over Australia and over Europe, it will make an interesting difference. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Right.
0: So, so, Ricky, you said you're working part-time now for the Bureau and then you do your PhD. How does your day look like now? I mean, how, do you do that two days a week and then you do university stuff or?
2: Yeah. So I'm um, I do one day a week in at the bureau. Um so I'm working on a project there looking at the kind of value and benefit of weather services in Antarctica. So it's a very slow project that um kind of slightly ties into um the kind of value chain of um the when we're talking in terms of the benefit to the public is a bit hard to judge it economically in money terms um, which I think for many weather services is a issue that how do you show the value of your product beyond people being able to make better decisions for farming and for other preventing of um, disasters and um, things safety decisions so uh, we're trying to look at some different methods for that and um work on the project for the bureau doing that and then um, we'll see what happens (laughs) and then yeah the other four days I'm um, or have been home for doing um, my PhD study.
0: I mean as I said in the beginning I I think it's really interesting to to move into psychology so you did actually I understood you did two bachelors in, in uh, psychology. <laughs> and now, um, I mean, this gives you the right now you <laughs> to do your PhD thesis, <laughs> I guess.
2: <laughs> um, yeah, Australia's a bit funny compared to some other countries okay. that um, you only have to have done an honours thesis to be then be able to do a PhD. We don't have to do the masters in between if we've done an honours thesis. So um, that's where... If you've done that fourth year thesis and you get a decent enough mark and can um, get super vote, someone to agree to take you on as a PhD student, then yeah, you can start your PhD. <laughs> and,
0: and how yeah. was that? I mean, um, you said, okay, you want to also change a little bit the career pathway, but, but what was the main motivation for you as the weather observer to start this psychology work? Where came the idea from?
2: So, so another story of something I fell into. <laughs> yeah. um, I was going to do the maths to become a forecaster because basically, um, and the easiest way to do that was to basically do a Bachelor of Science and got credit for some of my prior degree um, and therefore would only have to do the um, major in maths and physics to be able to do um, the forecasting. And I found it very hard doing um, the remote learning in mathematics, um, it's not my best subject and <laughs> someone needs to show me how to do it. So I um, picked up psychology as a different unit um, with the human behaviour side of it and just found that really interesting and ended up running with the psychology and doing the major in that and went on to do the fourth year. Um, because in Australia you need that if you want to become a qualified and registered psychologist. Mm -hmm. um, It's the minimum requirement. Um, Mm -hmm. So I kind of thought, I'll do this, Um, do the honours year, which I looked at um, the people's um or data set after the severe cyclone um marsha in queensland and that got me really interested in the weather decision making side and how people respond to warning messages and then mm-hmm. they kind of what we call protective actions so people's behaviors you know deciding not to go somewhere um because of the weather type things so <laughs> i um Pretty much found an interest in, you know, why do people do the weird things they do? Yeah. Um, is um, where the psychology came into yeah. it. So um,
0: so it's a perfectly, uh, it's a perfect combination of, of the two things, yeah. I think. So yeah, that's, I mean, sounds great to me, actually.
2: <laughs> oh, I hope so. <laughs> Hopefully, someone agrees at the end of the day and gives me a job. <laughs>
0: You do this now since you started last year with a PhD. So um, I guess you you are a little bit into the field now. So I was wondering where are actually the main gaps in how weather and climate information are communicated to the public or to those who who actually need and and use the forecast? And also what are the consequences of these gaps?
2: So I think um, it's something that... Um, You still see within the kind of weather and the meteorology sector are very focused on their data and their models and having a very, very good forecast um, Mm -hmm. that is accurate to 95% or whatever they're getting up to nowadays. Um, And the focus is on buying the big supercomputer and investing in the better physics for the models so you get that tiny percent of improvement and then people forget that the whole other side of the equation is, well, there's someone on the other end receiving that information and, um, you know, are they going to do what you think they're going to do with that information? Um, So that's probably where I'd say there's that kind of human behaviour gap. And particularly in Australia, after our severe bushfires and big flood events and big cyclones, you do see emergency services and the community moving much more towards I'm trying to understand that human behaviour side of it. So that's not just psychology. It's um, all the other social science humanities can contribute as well um, equally with their different viewpoints. So um, how people understand whether information and wes- weather messages and then the impacts of their past experience and what decision they might make now mm-hmm. kind of gives us those individual differences between whether someone will react how you think they will yeah. or, you know, they... Last, this last event they experienced was a big flood event. So they get a warning message for a bushfire, but they prepare for a flood because that's kind of what's in their head for, oh, it's an emergency, so we need to do this. Um, so there can be those kind of things and, um, you know, I always say, which many other people have said in the literature, that you can have a perfect forecast, but if no one's listening to you, then exactly. you've wasted your money. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, so how can I mean, how can, how can you make people listening more?
2: So it's um, kind of multi things um and i'm not an expert on any of them by any means but there's the kind of that trust and that building a relationship with um the community which when you have um in australia we have um forecasters embedded with the emergency services so they've got a very tight relationship to give the best quality advice to the um, people working on the ground in the bushfires or we um you know what weather source do people trust? Um, and that's um, a big factor for weather information. Um, also, people will look at multiple sources. So if everyone's saying the same message, hopefully then it's more believable <laughs> um, as well. But, I mean, you can only give people the best advice possible. You can't kind of, there's no way to control them and people don't want to be told what to do quite often either. But um, when they move messages towards having impact-based messages, so saying... It's gonna be a fifty kilometer an hour wind that means trees might fall over, your trampoline's gonna blow down the road, mm-hmm. telling people what might happen from that point of view of this is what it means to you and personalizing the message. Um, and especially when you're looking talking to um, different communities and like migrant communities and things in different languages as well can be quite important.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: You do surveys um, with your with your project. Um, so, who are the people you talk to, actually?
2: Yeah, the first kind of study that I'm um, I keep having to get back to the diary and dig through it. But um, I basically started off um, wanting to talk to people who have recently worked in antarctica so um we kind of set a minimum of six weeks in antarctica Mm -hmm. within the last three years um and uh, speaking to people who'd done just that one short trip and then people who've been working down there for 20 odd years so um it was fantastic response Mm and kind of a grade of experience and um basically the survey was to get some pre-interview <laughs> information around what information sources you use, who do you talk to, mm-hmm. um, and how do you kind of get your weather information? Because I have a reasonable idea of what happens in the Australian program, but all the other national programs and tourism, um, I would not know <laughs> how they work. So, um, I was ended up speaking to people who have worked in um, lots of different jobs and lots of different locations, um, probably a bit over half within the Australian program, but um, then there was a few people who had worked as forecasters for other programs, um, people who had worked in tourism and things like that. Um, so it was, yeah, trying to find out what's the most useful information to them as well. So they all want to know about the wind. <laughs>
0: ah, okay. Because that that's interesting because I, I was wondering, yeah, okay, so, so the wind uh, maybe a, a main main point.
2: Yeah, didn't matter if you, you know you're operating small boats or you're driving the ship or you're kind of in the field chasing seals. Um, if you're working yeah. outside, it's the wind that has the biggest kind of impact on your decisions. Obviously, okay. things like blizzards and not being able to see is obviously another big item. But yeah, definitely for operating outside, it's about the wind. And um, if it's too windy, you can't do. Certain tasks and things like that.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, because I was wondering, how do people make the decisions based on weather? And um, maybe as an example, um, I know these exist. So there are people who offer kayaking tours around Antarctica, <laughs> and and so so if 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 I would be one of those, what what would you? Um, I mean, how would I? Where would I look for information? And what would be your recommendation to do? To make
2: sure that the people are safe in my tour yeah no so definitely i mean normally by the time you're a tour guide in antarctica you're fairly cluey about either guiding (laughs) or you know working outdoors and things like that so um, they have a good kind of situational awareness i suppose you'd call it you know you're aware of what's happening around you um and scientists very quickly develop it when they're working down there after they've had their head in a hole and suddenly um, the environment's changed around you without realising it. Um, so um, again, it's if it's too windy, you wouldn't be taking people off the ship because it would be um, too dangerous. Um, so you know, probably t- twenty-five and um, twenty to thirty k's an hour would be their upper limit for winds. So they would be getting a wind reading off the ship because um, most ships have their own um, weather stations and collect weather data um so and plus they'd look outside and say oh there's white caps <laughs> um we're not <laughs> going to be uh, going out in that or you know if it's raining or snowing or anything like that you'd say oh we have to can the trip it's um they would have their every kind of expedition would have their operation procedures and so there'll be various different limits and recommendations and their personal Um, risk as well Um, so then they quite often the ship's masters or the ship's captain would have access to what we call grip files um, which are very basic model data um, that will show you over a three hour or six hour period what weather systems are coming through so that's when people um, whether they're formally trained or not and quite often um, ships captains are it's part of their formal training they learn to do forecasting for themselves and by the time you're driving a ship in antarctica you're very interested in the weather
1: <laughs> right. um, so
2: they're really um so they'll have a conversation with their expedition leader with the ship's master about what weather's expected and what the plan is for the day um yeah. so it comes down to the expedition leader saying well it looks good then the person leading the tour would say well it looks good we'll go um so it there's kind of people's personal safety considerations and at the end of the day the buck stops with the expeditioner leader and the ship's master and on stations um research stations it will be the station leader and the operations people who give the final go or no go and in the field it's people whoever's in charge of a team or people Mm -hmm. making their personal Mm -hmm. decisions
0: So, so based on your early results uh, from this PhD thesis, uh, I, I mean, you said wind is very important, but what are other main weather information people find useful for for making their decision?
2: Yes. Yeah, so, um, probably next highest on the list is um, being if they have a. Forecasting service on on station, or they can speak to a weather professional. Mm-hmm. So that's incredibly highly related. For not everyone has access to that, and particularly not on the tourist ships we're just talking about. Um, but they can um, nowadays have better access with um, the internet and getting being able to interpret things. But um, on a station, if um, particularly within the Australian program, we send down forecasters. So being able to talk to forecasters and have an operations briefings Um, sometimes with other programs they might have um, access to a forecaster either on station or in their home country Um, Mm -hmm. so they can call them up or they get written specific forecasts so most kind of scheduling and planning of tasks and knowing how long you'll have in the field that the weather's good or suitable for what you want to do is what they're using the information for. So um, that kind of what we call the weather window, which is from aviation to say, the wind, you know, it's our window of opportunity where it's good conditions mm-hmm. and we're safe and we're ready to go and we've advantage. got enough. Yeah, yeah, let's take advantage, let's go. So um, that's basically, and obviously um, quantifying how certain or uncertain, all the, do all the models agree, it's mm-hmm. gonna be a perfect sunny day or half say this and half say that. And that's when, That judgment comes from the forecaster um, and from people's experience. And, you know, what model do they think is better (laughs) um, to say, (laughs) oh, we're, you know, 70% certain it will be this, or we're kind of 50% certain, or the models are saying it's going to crap out, but, you know, we know. The winds never matches what the model tells us, but is an indicator that that day is not going to be any good anyway. So mm-hmm. it's you know, different ways people look at the <laughs> what information they have.
1: It's actually very very interesting what what your project what you are doing in your project because it's one it's very interesting from polar prediction perspective because it's about kind of building this bridges between who is providing the information and who is actually receiving and so kind of finding a way to make them combine because as you were saying sometimes it's this is not the case and uh and this is yeah one of the most important goals that the that the project is meant has meant to achieve in in the lifetime and i wanted to to ask you and make a, a more practical question maybe if you were to make uh, recommendations, either either to WMO on a very high level or in general to uh, research centers and and forecast providers. Uh, what would you say is is still lacking here, and to make this dialogue better? So, what kind of infrastructure or or product would make it easier for these two uh, worlds, let's say, to to combine and and profit from each other?
2: Definitely it's the people who don't have a forecaster on station. So your kind of tourism industry and a lot of the expeditioners during the winter, um, they don't have that high-level forecasting service or accessibility to weather information. So um, if they're improving the models and the forecasts to be able to, provide um, that kind of access for people to have better information um, and more localised information as well because um, you get a lot of local location-specific effects, particularly for wind and things like that. So having a better understanding of the needs of the users at the end of the day means you can, when you're developing new products, you can kind of tailor them to that market and having people who... um, you know providing education to expeditioners about how well this is a model what mm-hmm. does it mean or how do you read it and yeah. you know that kind of training um and explanations on you know a dummy's guide to reading a forecast <laughs> um kind of thing would be yeah. I think, useful um because yes yeah, they're the kind of having more models or better accessibility and quite often it's um word of mouth as to oh, john uses this model and when I was here last, he showed me this. So this is the one I'll teach you how to use because that's the only one I know about. And there might be something better out there or more suitable out there. Right. Um, yeah. especially with the, um, and a lot of the apps and things don't work um, <laughs> down there because of the power <laughs> limits that you might use back home. Um, so things like that can kind of, um, I think that kind of, to a certain extent, just weather education and interpretation of the information they do have access to and then improving... Mm-hmm. Obviously, the being able to have a forecast um, during the winter season, particularly, um, yeah, if you're still because you're still working outside, you still need to plan your activities. People still might be going on longer trips, and knowing that you can you have four days of good weather can make the yeah. difference between getting to a hut and being sitting there inside for four days because you can't go outside. Right. <laughs> um, and yeah work so yeah, when you're that would resources make, and planning. yeah yeah that would make better use
1: of, of the opportunities that you have and also of the resources that you have because sometimes it's also a matter of you know you have limited resources and and it's it makes sense to use them at the highest potential so this is very interesting that's true and what do you why are you doing it from a psychological perspective? So what what is the biggest strength maybe of,
2: of looking at the use? The yeah, so um, the whole kind of next part of my project that I haven't started yet, um, we'll be looking <laughs> at some of the kind of cognitive psychology side, so your decision-making and the quality of your decisions. So um, the big word is uh, kind of metacognition, which is thinking about your decision-making. So... Um, Are you aware that you're making a good weather decision or a poor weather decision? Okay. I mean, you see um, news stories where a tourist ship got stuck in sea ice. It's like, well, how did that happen? And what um, kind of errors in someone's decision-making led to that particular circumstance? Um, So preventing or you know, um, helping people make better weather decisions, I suppose, is one of my kind of motivations. So... Um when we're talking about doing experiments in the lab or on a computer and testing someone reads a forecast, what would they do in this scenario? Mm-hmm. Um, that's where some of the theories and the behavior, behavioural science stuff comes into um, what I'm interested in doing. And um, even just the wording of a forecast and what information you do or don't include, what the map looks like or what the pictures look like. There's, like, 50 million years of (laughs) different (laughs) things you could look at Um, if you start teasing out to every format we get weather information in. And, um, you know, one of the interesting things is people don't necessarily know where they are if they've just got a weather map. You you know, if you put a dot on the weather map that says this is where you are, they have Mm -hmm. much better reference points to say, oh, well that warning information or that thunderstorm is coming towards me or it isn't which is why people I think quite like the radar um shows the rain's coming towards you or not um things like that so um that's yeah where the kind of human behavior is what psychology is all about and (laughs) all the science of human behavior so um this is so exciting
1: i'm actually truly looking forward to seeing where your research is is bringing you and what will be the the results of this this is one as as we were saying one of the of the examples of research done within the europol prediction and the polar prediction project which really deals with with the people and how they they make the best use of of the information that also other researchers are are working on providing so I yeah it's it's a it's a very different perspective than what we usually hear of because it's most like most of the time it's about the the science behind it and how you can work to make the better data the the better best possible data available and this is also on on the other side so yeah it it, it's it's great and it's it's incredibly interesting
0: but (laughs) but never forget social science is also science you know
1: yeah exactly, oh, exactly. <laughs>
2: yes yeah, yeah. No, we might be able to find um you know something if it's twenty percent explains someone's behavior is amazing, but we're never going to get at this point in time up to the kind of ninety nine percent you might see for a model i mean yeah. um, mathematics and stuff like that it's um yeah understanding the differences, but um and people kind of will always surprise you (laughs) Um, but they're always incredibly willing to help too which is the amazing thing about Antarctica and the Antarctic community that even the people who aren't there as researchers that are there for the maintenance are always incredibly enthusiastic about the projects and being able to contribute and take quite quite a lot of pride in being able to work on programs and hear about what science is happening.
0: Okay, I think we're moving a little bit towards the end. It's already uh, through the half hour, but um, before we actually close, we wanted to um, see whether there are questions from the community. Um, I think uh, we got um, three through social media. Um, So Sarah, you wanna read out one question?
1: (laughs) Yeah, so we have a question that came through Instagram. And yeah. uh and it's about they wanted to know if people are more stressed out than normal in Antarctica. If it's if it ha- if there is any <laughs> correlation to the harsh conditions, if, if from a psycho from a yeah, psychological yeah. perspective, of course.
2: Um I <laughs> you know, be talking to my supervisor, this is her area more so than mine. But um you get stressed in different ways from the kind of isolation, but they're also picking people who are incredibly healthy physically and also mentally able, flexible um, and aware of the kind of impact on others. So you can never um, know what's going to happen back home while you're in Antarctica. So that's definitely something that can be a stress. And a lot of people probably with COVID understand that too, if they can't get to family and friends at the moment, Um, just, that kind of pressure can definitely stress people out more. Um, but in other ways, you kind of got your little world down south um, and you don't have to worry about media and you don't hear about fashion um, and the latest and greatest whatever. And a lot of um, prior to the last probably five years, you didn't really have access to Facebook and internet and a lot of things like that. So um, some of those kind of pressures were... Not a, and stresses weren't around either, mm-hmm. so um, it's kind of one of those mixed bag things. Um, you also have a lot of close friends and community, so that helps too. Yeah.
0: Maybe actually some very relaxed people also in Antarctica. Yeah, they don't have all this.
2: <laughs> Until it's time to go home and you're wondering what's happening yeah. or the delay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Right. Yeah. There,
0: there was another question I got from, uh, from social media, so uh, someone has asked um, the radio sounds. So, so um, usually, as far as I understood, the, the sounds when they come down back to the ground, they have parachutes. Small ones, I guess. I don't know. I've never seen it. But so the question was, uh, uh, in Antarctica, do these sons have parachutes or not?
2: Because I know. Yeah, um, so we use parachutes in Australia um, mm-hmm. more because if they what comes goes up comes down and may hit someone that the, uh, yes. <laughs> right, <laughs> which is very rare. But you know do yeah, someone you know, uh, someone's um, animal in the field or something's got hit, um, which. Uh, or, you know, someone's, I uh, have heard of, a reserve has gone outside and the sun's on the floor outside, so it's blown away and blown back and landed where it took off from, but they're very rare. Yeah. Um, partly because of um, the parachutes are plastic. Um, we don't use them in Antarctica for that yeah. reason, because it mm-hmm. is going into the ocean and obviously the environmental impact is already um Considerable with <laughs> whether the two thousand weather balloons around the world every day. Um, so we um, don't actually use the parachutes on the ones yeah. um, in Antarctica. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: I, because I think also in in the Arctic they are not used. They are used in, in uh, yeah other places, but not not the Arctic. So that's interesting. Okay and then actually I had another question um if there is nothing from from uh, the audience so you you are now you're still able to type in a question if you want <laughs> um so while I ask my last question here from this paper so I saw I saw on your project description and I saw this term quite a lot um related to to weather and climate information um In regard of uh, how people make decisions based on on this, um, the term weather salience. What does it mean? Maybe you can explain because I think it's it's a term that is this is uh, used by more and more people. And uh, yeah, I was always wondering.
2: Because, yeah, so um, salience probably comes down to, it's used um, if something's salient or not in psychology, but in terms of weather salience, um, it's the relevance of the information to you. So um, how interested are you in weather in general or how important do you think it is? Because you'll have people who read a forecast every day and then there's people who don't care. And that's perfectly fine. Um, But um, there's, so that's probably that scale of, um, you know, does that make a difference to how then people interpret the information or how aware aware they are of the risk of severe weather or bad weather might be towards them. So if you're less weather salient, you have less interest in the weather information, you may not pay attention to it. In the same way, which then might affect um, your kind of what we call risk perception, so your um, concern over whether the weather can do you harm or not, um, you know risk the um, is your kind of likelihood of future harm kind of thing. so um, when we're talking about weather salience, that's kind of um, are there things we can do to make people more aware of the weather in Antarctica, whether it's around education and raising their awareness of the risks and becoming more weather salient um, and I also personally think and hopefully we'll get around to testing the, um, this as a hypothesis that um, because you're more immediately in the environment in Antarctica um, the same with people who work outdoors all the time you're more aware of your environment so I would say they've probably got a higher weather salience um, which is something that with the various surveys or um, kind of theories we can test in experiments and things like that so um that's if that answers the question or not
0: so so from that i would understand increasing the weather salience around people would also help to maybe get into better better decisions related on the weather eventually right yeah Yeah. okay yeah because
2: yeah yeah, i mean for a warning you've got to get someone to actually hear the warning or pay attention to mm -hmm. it before you can get them to take it action to keep themselves safe um you know so any kind of health behavior as well has the same issues around getting people to hear your message or your warning information so um yeah what kind of um we call them interventions or trainings or methods might improve um yeah that kind of understanding of people yeah okay
0: wow thank you If there are no more final questions, um, we would like to thank Vicky very much for giving us uh, so much detailed insights in in your work. Um, I think it's really great um, to hear that the project is moving forward. And um, as Sarah said, we're excited to see more results of this. And uh, maybe you will be able to present at the Your final summit, which is hopefully going to be placed and take place in Montreal in May 2022. Um, yeah, hopefully we are allowed to travel by that time.
2: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I be starting to be out okay, Yeah, yes. <laughs> yes,
0: and uh, yeah, I think uh, your work um, will be will be actually crucial for, for the recommendations that uh, Job might formulate at the end of the project, which actually the end of the project, um, end of Job is uh, end of 2022. So I think there's still some time to to work on this the, and uh,
2: a bit like coming to the <laughs> part.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, so so that would be will be great, and um, yeah, and this could be then taken up by the World Meteorological Organization to maybe shape the future way of how weather observations will be actually translated into information and uh, products that can help people. To make their decisions, yeah. and also, um, yeah, we would like to thank this audience. Uh, thanks for listening and to <laughs> follow this uh, live iSpot episode. I personally think it was a fun way to do. Even we had this <laughs> technical issues. Uh, I hope the recording is fine. Um, thanks to Apex again to to let us. Um, um, be on your schedule here and uh, in particular to Claire who um, organized um, the Zoom session here and also she's organizing the YOP session that will come um, later uh, today at 3pm UTC and uh, I think yeah if you want to learn more about the southern hemisphere efforts of the year of polar prediction you should definitely go there call in and uh, listen to um, there are many great projects um, presented at this uh, session, also Sarah is going to give a talk about our communication yes. work at the ICO, the International Coordination Office. And uh, before we say goodbye, we wanted to let you know. So we are on social media. Sarah, you know all the details. <laughs> Instagram. I know all the
1: details <laughs> because they are super easy to remember. So we are on Twitter and on Instagram at Polar Prediction. So both of them right. at Polar Prediction, and you can find that you can find us there. Also, if you want to listen to the episode of the podcast, this episode and the, all the others, you just type the iSpot on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, other uh, podcast platforms, and you find us there. It's a slightly different focus, but yeah, it's still great to listen to.
0: Yeah, and we have, we have our website, the PPP website.
1: Bollaprediction.net
0: And also, if you like this episode or didn't like it so much... Or other ones, you can send us an email, um, polarprediction at gmail.com. So I think, yeah, you can always reach out to us. And um, with this, thank you again.
1: Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you, Vicky. Have
0: a good night. It's late Mm. in (laughs) mobile. That's
2: all right. Thank you very much um, for letting me blather on about my project.
1: (laughs) Okay. Goodbye.
2: The iSpot is produced by the
0: Year of Polar Prediction International Coordination Office
1: with the technical support of Radio Visa
0: TV as well as the support by the communication team of Mosaic and the Alfred Wegener Institute.
1: Editorial responsibility is with
0: Kirstin Werner and
1: Sara Pascoletto.
0: Our theme music is composed by Kevin McLeod, available on
1: incompetech.com. For any questions, please contact us at polarprediction at gmail.com.